Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am with indefatigable commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend, you find these conversations enlightening, entertaining, stimulating to the mind or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to my channel. Be sure to like it, share it with a close friend and family member, and join the conversation. My distinguished guest today, with whom I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to talk, is Marcus Collins. Dr. Collins is an award-winning marketer, cultural translator, and head of strategy at Wyden and Kennedy, a global advertising agency with which some of the world's biggest brands have collaborated. An inductee to the American Advertising Federation's Hall of Achievement, Dr. Collins has worked with Google, Apple, the Brooklyn Nets, Beyonce, and Budweiser. Outside the corporate setting, Dr. Collins is a clinical assistant professor of marketing at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Uh, and of course, Marcus is the author of For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. A fine book, uh, I'm sorry, a fine book worthy of placement on your shelf, of which I strongly recommend you all get yourself a copy. Uh, Marcus, it's an absolute honor to be joined by you today. Uh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so first, I'd like to open up the floor to you to comment or gloat over your Wolverines' decisive victories over the detested Buckeyes and the hapless Hawkeyes. In two consecutive weeks, we were talking about this briefly off camera. Uh, but what are your thoughts about the last two weeks, and what is the vibe like around on that campus? It's a uh, it's a moment of jubilation. Um, the Ohio State Michigan State rivalry is one of the most uh, contested the most celebrated, the most colorful rivalry in all of uh, college sports. So uh, any win there is sort of the biggest uh, win of the year. And to win a national championship is sort of icing on the cake, if you will. Definitely, definitely revered, definitely wanted. But that game matters a, a whole heck of a lot. So the win over Iowa this weekend is just one step closer to that. So there's just a lot of pride, which Michigan doesn't have uh, a short supply of in general, uh, but pride today is, is probably higher than it normally is, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, it must be an exciting environment uh, at which you are at, at the center, of which you are at the center. Uh, so Marcus, I think we should begin in earnest by defining the central term around which your excellent book revolves, and that is, of course, culture. I think if you were to ask your average man on the street, even on the highly educated streets of Ann Arbor, for a definition of culture, he'd struggle to return one. So relieve us and our average man of this hardship. What to you is culture? Sure. And I think that your approximation is accurate. Um, culture is one of those words that's just hard for us to define because of the omnipresent nature of it all. It's ambiguous in the way that it, or, or in the way that it is abstract, rather, more than ambiguous, it's abstract in the nature in which it manifests. Um, and also, um, it's in everything that we do, which makes it hard for us to find language to, to, to concretely describe it. 
Um, and it's been defined many, many ways in many, many disciplines. I tend to look at it from a sociological lens, um, particularly from a gentleman by the name of Mill Durkheim, one of the founding fathers of sociology. And he talks about culture as a system or a system of systems. And this system consists of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and govern what people like us do, right? Because of who we are, we therefore navigate the world accordingly. And taking one step forward, a gentleman by the name of Raymond Williams, a cultural scholar, talks about culture as a realized signifying system, that it, this system of conventions and expectations is the manner in which we make meaning of the world, that we translate the world. So culture is a meaning-making system that's made up of conventions and expectations that govern who we are and what people like us do. Yeah, I think that's that's beautifully put. And I really appreciated your incorporation of especially Durkheim, who has so much to say in the fields of sociology and psychology, uh, that you're able to kind of um, simplify his work and uh, integrate it with your own. And I think that was very helpful in your book. Uh, now, as I was preparing for this interview and sort of reflecting on this idea of culture, uh, I think I came up with a, with a succinct definition, I'm sure inspired by some of the writers that I've read, and it is uh, the accumulated habits of heart and of mind at a given period of time. Do you think that this is a, a usable definition? So I think that that is a, a, uh, a worthy definition. The challenge in that definition, and, and just in, in, in some of the, the, the the language that we use to describe it is that it's not terribly actionable that you, you put like usable so if it's about the heart and the mind you go okay so how do i like what do i do with that but when we describe it as conventions and expectations it begs the question well what are those conventions oh well those are the beliefs that we hold the ideologies that we tell ourselves about this collective uh, uh this collective understanding of truth and so if it is the conventions exist of our are consist of our beliefs and ideologies then they are manifested in our artifacts what we wear right uh our behaviors these are the the the, the traditions the rituals the norms the language that we use the vernacular the the dialect the language uh, uh the nomenclature that we use and it's expressed through our cultural production right art literature film music movies folklore uh uh, uh um stories and brands and branded products become ways by which we express our our membership within this cultural collective and when we think about culture like that these conventions we go oh now i can identify someone's culture i can say oh you're a part of those cult this particular culture but well, what do you believe what are the artifacts with behaviors with the language what's the cultural production and that gets us much closer to not only understanding our own culture but the culture of other people as well Right. So it almost needs to be brought down from my broader kind of airy philosophical idea to something more concrete, as you just described. I think yeah. that's that's important to to keep in mind. Yeah. Uh, tangibility helps us use it. Ac action or application uh, is possible when things are much more tangible and, and concrete. And, and to your point, you know, it's people who are way smarter than me uh, have 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 come across or offered or introduced this language over a century ago, the Durkheim, uh, the idea now is to just frame it in a way in which we today 
in leverage said language, not only in what we do from a consumption perspective, but also how we manage organizations or how we show up in organizations and, and, and even more so how we participate in society. I just want to linger for a moment on, on Durkheim. Is it difficult for you as a, as a scholar and as a writer uh, to refrain from uh, over complicating a book intended for a wide audience by incorporating a figure like him because he's he's so complex and so fundamental to multiple fields. Yeah, uh, you know, do you do you have, have some difficulty trying to restrain yourself and your exuberance to to talk about him to a broader audience and readership? Well, I think because my career started off at, in practice as a practitioner, I have a an affinity for simplicity. Like I have affinity for so what. Right, I have affinity for how do I use these things. So starting as a practitioner, then moving into academia with one foot in practice and one foot in in, in scholarship, that I've, I've I've always sort of wrestled with that duality. Not wrestled in that it's a struggle, but trying to be as accurate as I can in the explanation, but be as uh, as digestible as possible so people could do something about it right it's like being an academic practitioner is having you know it's it's living in in that tension between the two and i think when i was writing the book i realized that I was kind of serving two masters if you if you if you uh if you pardon the, the language in that i wanted to make sure that i was paying homage paying honor to the accuracy uh, of the academic part of of the scholarship, but also being mindful of people who aren't familiar with the canon uh, of, of theory, but definitely can benefit from using these things, whether they're in practice or they're a leader or manager or a politician, an activist, or or just someone you know who, who cohabitates who cohabitates the world with us. Uh, so that that tension, I think it's it's always at the center of everything I do. When I'm in the classroom, I want to make sure that my students understand the foundational theory that informs why things are the way they are. Right? If we have no why, we can get to know how. But if I never get to know how, then I'm not really preparing my students for, uh, for a world in which they can make these theories actionable. So I, it, it's sort of that's the, the cross that I bear, if you will, uh, in, in my work, just sitting at those two things and ensuring that they are accurate, but also actionable. And I think your balance of those two things is decidedly skillful and, and adroit. Uh, and I want to emphasize this for those who are curious about this book and, and want to read it. It is an excellent um, portrayal of the culture as it exists manifestly. You use very um, um, sharp examples of actual things happening while also seasoning it and also uh, building upon, uh, seasoning it with and building upon it with these fundamental philosophies and i think you do that expertly and it's probably because oh, you began you. and began in practice moved into academia now you're sort of in the convergence of those two so of course uh, you know many people might have difficulty defining culture i think few strain themselves to render judgment on its goodness or its badness i was reflecting on this fact mm -hmm. uh, so i mean you on the other hand are perfectly capable of of delivering a definition of culture as evidenced by your previous uh, erudite examples. Uh, but I'm curious to know your opinion on the current, let's say, American culture. 
Do you think it's good? Is it bad? Mm. Is it worthy of export? Is it debased uh, mm. or in need of radical improvement and change? So what are your general thoughts about the current American culture as it exists right here and now in 2023? Yeah, that's a, that is a, uh, that is a question that's worth pondering. And I'll say this, when I think about culture, I try not to, uh, to layer it with an evaluative lens, right? Um, I think that culture is, it just is, right? Culture as a phenomenon, as this, 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 uh, this operating system, it just is. And to evaluate one group of people's culture through my own cultural lenses, um, it's probably unfair, right? It's like looking at you know, another country and saying that like, oh, the way they treat so-and-so is wrong. They shouldn't do that. Well, we're evaluating through our own, our own lenses. So the question you asked, like, well, evaluate yourself, right? Remove the bias uh, because you're evaluating self. And when I think about um, the American culture, I realize that it is both fragmented um, and in many ways uh, divisive in the way that it exists and has been for, for a long time. I think a lot of it uh, is bound by the fact that uh, America has always been, been this way for the marginalized. So when I, when, I, when I take inventory and evaluate the current landscape of American culture, in some ways there is positiveness. Right, like you think about this positivity, we think about the beliefs and ideologies of of the country. Right, we're much more progressive about women's rights, much more progressive about uh, 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 about underestimated communities, right, particularly people of color. Right, we're much more progressive in those ways. However, we have regressed in other ways. Now, the question becomes: Is are is the progression positive for everyone, or is it regressive? for 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 others and those things in and of themselves are translated through cultural lenses this is why the evaluation of good or bad uh, becomes becomes a challenge but through my own experiences through my own meaning making system um i see I, I i see some things that are that are worrisome i think that are the institutions that we would normally call uh legislative our government uh, judicial, Supreme Court, these things are terribly compromised. And as a result, uh, it doesn't breed a lot of trust in, in the institution that we call uh, uh, United States. Um, I see a lot, of, uh, a lot of hate for people who don't look like us. But by us, I mean each individual. Um, I, I see a lot of uh, divisiveness in people who don't see the world similarly. Um, and therefore, it makes me very concerned about the state of affairs, about American culture today, at least in the way in which they're manifested in what we call fast culture. But slow culture, I think that there have been some substantial changes that have been, that have been very positive. The challenge is that those institutions that we used to, that we rely on, i.e. politics, i.e. Uh, judicial, uh, um, Judicial actors; those are the things that I'm most worried are most worrisome, because the erosion of those things end up uh, undermining the entire institution that we call our country. Hopefully, there's something helpful there. 
Oh, there, there's, there's more than a little bit helpful in that answer. There are a few points on which I'd like to expand or to have you expand. First, just definitionally, you mentioned fast and slow culture. Could you perhaps just very concisely explain the differentiation between those two? Yeah. So this this idea of fast and slow culture was, was introduced by a gentleman named Grant McCracken, who I love dearly. Um, and the way McCracken talks about it is this idea that there's some culture, that it are some conventions and expectations that change very quickly. Um, we see this at fads, what people are wearing, how people are dressing, people style themselves, what uh, what cultural production you're listening to, like what show, what music are listening to right now, who's the biggest artist, what show is happening, what movie is big. These things change fairly, fairly quickly. But beliefs and ideologies change very slowly. Like they're slow in their changes. Um, and therefore, when we look at these things, uh, we're looking at how culture changes, which always changes, we're evaluating it through one that changes quickly, the manifestation of the things that change slowly, our ideas, our ideals, and, and uh, beliefs and ideology. So when we talk about uh, observing culture, we have to look at it in the sense that these two, these two things, culture happens in different time horizons, one very slowly and one fast, fast culture and slow culture. Reflecting back, what is your favorite fad? From the past, oh, <laughs> a favorite fad from the past, uh, and one that a one and one that causes you to cringe, perhaps because you've participated in it. <laughs> uh, oh man, that's a hard one. Now you ask me to be self-incriminating. Uh, I think, um, you know, I, so it's hard for me to say. I'll start this way. It's hard for me to say because I think that those those fads those manifestations were all contextual so they had meaning at the at the time um i think the things that i cringe at are the ones that were uh that that essentially were at the expense of of other people uh, right? I, I think about like some of the, the the language that we used um back in the day that were disparaging for groups of people you know i talk about this in the book as you know like I, you know, I grew up loving stand-up comedy, love stand-up comedy, love, love, love. And I was a huge, huge, huge fan of Eddie Murphy. Like I just, I mean, I loved Eddie Murphy so much. Um, and when I go back and look at those earlier, uh, earlier work from him, i.e. Delirious and Raw, those stand-up, like iconic specials, you know, I cringe when I hear them because those things are not aligned with the beliefs and ideologies of, of today. And I cringe because I too participated in that language, repeating those, those jokes. So, and, and that was at the expense of, of communities that didn't have much of a voice that were marginalized in society. And those are things that I go, oh man, that wasn't really, really, really cool. Yeah, there's, there's no dearth of, uh, <laughs> of content at which to cringe when you look back at Richard Pryor and, uh, exactly. and Eddie Murphy, of course, That's though, right. uproariously funny. See, I thought you might say, in reference to the, the Michael Jackson album, just behind your right shoulder, maybe it was wearing the, the red glove for a little while. <laughs> oh, man, no, no, no. Yo, I mean, let's talk about Michael just for a moment. Like, just for a moment. I mean, Michael Jackson, uh, in my mind, I mean, he's the best or the best best artist ever walked the earth and and i say that not only because of his cultural production through his music but through the the aesthetic in which he created for himself right like 
you know, there, there's the dance moves, there's the, the iconography, right? Like the, 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 uh, the sparkly glove, there are the socks, there are the, the, uh, the penny loafers, like the, all the things, right? It's all the things that become sort of these markers of identity that is embodied in this human being who was a, a musical artist and, and much, much more. So I think about the red jacket, the thriller jacket, when I think about the sparkly glove, there, I don't think you can name an artist who has that distinctiveness today, that level of distinctiveness um, and that kind of reverberation. So again, right now we go, would I ever wear that? No, 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 because contextually it doesn't make much sense. Uh, but even then, that's actually the, the, the interesting part about it, that even then people didn't dress like Michael Jackson on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Like we, we didn't, that wasn't like our style, much like Prince. People didn't dress like Prince on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Uh, even though his aesthetic was very distinct. Similarly, people don't dress like Beyonce on a day-to-day -day basis because there's, I think of all the artists today, her staying power, her relevance and her distinctiveness uh, uh, is so salient that to dress like Beyonce, someone would go, oh, you're doing a Beyonce bit, right? And and as, as human beings, as social animals who wanna fit in and also stand out, that becomes a, 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 a becomes a, a challenge to do so when we are clearly copying someone else's aesthetic whose aesthetic is so so uh, so salient and pervasive. Yeah, there are certainly worse aesthetics that you can copy uh, than uh, that of Michael Jackson. Of course, he was totally inimitable. I was thinking when you were giving that response of another artist today who might um, occupy that stature, a similar stature as far as you know culture of cultural significance frankly in the world of music i'm not sure that one exists uh, i can think of one who has existed for many many years and that's elton john i was just thinking of the combination of style and substance as a great performer and also a great um, image of what a performer could and should yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's like the only one but i'll have to think uh, more deeply about a current artist who might who might occupy that that place. I'm not sure if one does exist. And of course, I asked the evaluative question of you because it is difficult. And, and in your book, as I said, you do an absolutely amazing job of, you know, defining everything. And that's really what we need. I think as the, the lay public, as your readership, we above all sense the culture but like I said, can't quite articulate what it is. That's right. So uh, that's kind of why I wanted to ask that that kind of naughty little question of you. And I think you re responded uh, brilliantly. I'll just add that uh, across the American culture, right, in every subset, I think there is unanimous discontent with our political institutions. Mm -hmm. So that's actually the one thing uh, upon which there's broad agreement. You know, we're all disappointed in the way in which our leg legislative uh, legislative body works or doesn't work, and you know the, the the way in which the executive power is working, and and certainly now the judicial branch, which previously was a little bit held in a little bit more esteem, but has degraded as of late, at least in the minds of most people. And I think that that's actually representative of the fact that these people that we vote on, mm. uh, that we elect to represent us. Are representing such a diverse body of, of people who don't see the world similarly. Like the the American uh, consciousness um, is so uh, 
uh, is so embattled that it becomes a challenge to actually represent it in a very representative way because the numbers will tell us one thing the numbers say oh people believe this on a topic and therefore the representing body should represent that right it's to signify what the body uh, uh wants the the will of the people but because of the 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 legislative practices that are in place that allow you to gerrymander that allow you to doctor that allow you to uh, uh to shift and subvert what we would call justice according to uh the constitution or at least according to the spirit of the constitution um that becomes uh un under siege and therefore you go oh man is this body even representing me so the populace goes that's not representative of how i of of me or of the of the pop of the, the broader population and the underserved population as to say the smaller the minority goes well i don't believe the populace represents me and therefore i want my people in there and it becomes sort of a, a theoretical philosophical question about whose voice should be heard and what is the will of the quote unquote the people mm. are the people the people of of power and all the ways we think about power as far as you know where you sit in social economic or the, the the social stratosphere social economic power these things that america as a country has underscored as this is what matters to us in a capitalistic frame remember context matters um or is it your uh pure populace and uh, their voice should be representative of what is and that uh, i love kind of brings back uh, back to sort of the the, the, the impetus of all this is that that starts with the beliefs and ideologies. Yeah. What do we believe? That undermine everything. Yes. Exactly. So the underpinning of all this starts with what do we, the people, believe? And because of what we believe, then the way we manifest ourselves in the world, be it the way we show up in the world, the way we uh, uh, govern our, our society should be byproducts of our shared belief. And when those shared beliefs are not shared, the way in which we ought to show up in the world becomes splintered. This, your point, it leads me seamlessly into a, into a topic I wanted to raise, uh, but was uncertain about raising because I wasn't sure if it would, it would deviate us too far off path. Uh, that, but I think, I think it will work. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about multiculturalism. Yeah. Um, you know, we speak of an American culture, or at least I did at the outset of our conversation. Uh, but at present, we pride ourselves in being a multicultural society. So mm -hmm. I just want to ask you, uh, is multiculturalism inherently good? Is it desirable? You know, is it unqualifiedly, uh, you know, something that we want as a society? Or yeah. is it a cause of division and mm. the unraveling of the shared beliefs that are necessary to yeah. proceed forward as a country? Amazing question. So let's start with some construct. Let's define what we mean by multiculturalism. So we define what culture is, right? It's a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and govern what people like us do. Awesome. So multiculturalism means many systems of conventions and expectations that, that govern what people like us do. And so the question asks, or through that frame, the question says, okay, do we feel like a society of many cultures, of many conventions and expectations 
uh, are is that good for society writ large? So that question uh, uncovers or or introduces the the notion of diversity, right? And not diversity in a colloquial sense, but diversity as in heterogeneity, like many different things. And what the literature tells us about diversity is that we get to better ideas, better solutions. Uh, 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 we get to, to, to better outcomes when we have different perspectives looking at a problem, looking at a thing. And as a result, we get novel ideas because you saw it in a way that I didn't, right? It's, it's the, 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 the old adage uh, that if you only see the the tail of the of the elephant you think you see a snake as opposed to this massive thing right so having different perspectives allow you to see something in its entirety and therefore you get to better solutions um so the question then is like all right so if multiculturalism is many convinces expectations and the benefit of that is that we get diversity of thought we get heterogeneity in perspective then we go, yeah, that's great. That's awesome, right? The question is the manner in which those things come together. Are we actually benefiting from heterogeneity? Are we benefiting from the melting pot that is multiculturalism? If the, if the, the context in which people come together from different cultures are not situated such that we get heterogeneity or that we get the the bonus and my 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 uh my colleague here at ross scott page calls it the diversity bonus if we don't get if we don't have the conditions that are curated such that we're able to benefit from the diversity bonus then instead we get a lot of people with a lot of different points of view about the world and no connection but the american sort of ethos is this land of the free home of the brave the pursuit of happiness the pursuit of happiness by the agency of freedom that that's the shared belief that all these many cultures believe in and as a result we should be able to realize the american dream we should be able to realize the diversity bonus because we all share that ethos and the way in which we see it and perceive it helps us get to better outcomes so that's a long-winded way of saying that yes I think that we can be, and yes, I think that we are better because of it. However, we have to be very intentional about the manner in which we curate society. We curate the context, the environment in which we share uh, this landmass that we call a country um, so that we are all sort of living out the creed of this country, of the land of the free, home of the brave, this idea of the pursuit of happiness for everyone. But if your point of view in the world means my marginalization, if your ideology and belief means that not everyone deserves a right to this, then I would say that you are antithetical to the belief of the country and therefore are not a part of the multiculturalism uh, project that is democracy uh, and, 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 and the American dream. At the risk of standing out of frame and becoming out of focus, I'm going to prevent myself from standing and applauding that response. I think that was beautifully and eloquently stated. In itself could be your your pitch to become a, a president of the United States or to attain to some high office. I applaud you. That was excellently put. Really what you almost did, almost unconsciously, but I assume somewhat consciously was... was uh, um, articulate anew the, the, 
the towering words in the preamble to our Declaration of Independence. In, I think in, in what you just stated, I discerned that spirit. And yes, I agree entirely. That is the spirit uh, you know, around which we should all uh, bring ourselves and champion and pursue. While you were giving this response, I was also very briefly reminded of um, Karl Popper's famous paradox of tolerance. Basically, in short, what he says is, you know, when a society is so incredibly tolerant of every viewpoint of every, you know, of everything, eventually that uh, in time, some intolerant voices will, will come up and increasingly they will duplicate. And eventually what was originally a very tolerant uh, world, let's say, becomes intolerant. It changes into its opposite just to not quite play devil's advocate, but to bring up a contrary idea, there could sure. be a paradox of multiculturalism. Yeah. Where, 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 uh, you know, where the original culture is so limitlessly tolerant or accepting of every single culture that in time, those cultures that might be inimical to the original culture in some ways take over and, and maybe resign that original culture to the margins or maybe cast it out of existence entirely. Yeah. So your thoughts about the paradox of cult multiculturalism. I love that. I absolutely love that. And it is, it's really spot on, right? Cause what, what it's saying is that if we welcome all perspectives, won't at some point a perspective be antithetical to the broader perspective, right? Is there just by nature going to be sort of social dissent? that then you know we give an equal voice to what is antithetical to the populace and i go well, well yeah like that's not, like that, that's sort of inherent uh, uh to humanity we talk about this idea of uh fitting in yet standing out like it's a it's sort of a part of uh, uh, of what it means to be human right to want to be a part of a thing but also carve out something for and for, for yourself and what happens is that when people are brave enough to to dissent they then go okay who else out there sees the world the way we do? And then we together create our, our, our own sort of society inside of society. And uh, it, it, you can see this thing represented based on um, what Carl Gauss introduced in the 1800s, right? We know this as, we know it as the normal curve today, but it starts the Gaussian curve, which is the most accurate depiction or representation of how value or how things diffuse within a population. Um, and what we know of the Gaussian curve, the normal curves, that everything that that spreads, everything that happens or propagates in a population abides by this normality, this bell curve, uh, uh, this bell curve phenomenon. And the distribution, people in the middle, that's the people that are most normal. But there are always people on the ends, the fringes. Right? And the more in the middle you are, the more normal you are. And we go, oh, those people are normal. Why are they normal? Because they see the world the way the populace does. But there are always going to be people on the long tail, people on the far edges that see the world differently. And you go, oh, man, we don't want those people, do we? Because they're actually pushing against what we believe. Well, I would say that, yeah, you want those people because those people bring novel ideas to the populace. Those people bring uh, you know, new points of view that we haven't considered. They challenge the orthodoxy as such that we continue to evolve as a society. Right, and we see these things in like uh, the civil rights movement, 
We see this in like women's uh, 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 women's uh, liberation movement. All of these things happen with a small fringe of society that pushed against the current orthodoxy. And it's through these exogenous shocks to the system that we go, oh, I never thought about it that way. Let's discuss. Much like the earlier question about some of the fads that we cringe at. The, the orthodoxy was that, hey, you could talk about these people a certain way and use what we now consider inflammatory language, which was back then just normal. Like I was watching a movie with my daughter that came out. I'm not going to name the movie, not to you know criticize anyone, but like it was like a 2001 release. Right? So this is like 22 years ago, I'm watching the movie and they're dropping gay slurs. Yeah. And I go, oh, oh my goodness. Like, and this was a very, very, very popular movie. And I go, oh my goodness. Like I cringe at it watching in present time, but I probably even said it back then. But it wasn't until a small population of people said, hey, that's not okay, that it changed. Now the question becomes, how does that change? That changes through the discourse. It changes through the conversation that we have to go, oh, wow, I never thought about it that way. Let's recontextualize this. Let's reframe this. Let's rework this to negotiate whether it is worth our attention, one, and two, how we're going to rectify this dissonance. So all that is to say, to be, again, long in the tooth, because you asked such a, a, a rich question, I want to make sure that I, I give it the, 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 the validity that it deserves, is that if we look at the world through that frame, that dissent, social dissent, is how we get to uh, uh, evolution, is how we progress, is how we get better, is how we get to new ideas, new innovations and the like, that we need that. And that's a good thing. The thing that we have to keep in mind, we have to keep plumb in our minds, is what is the unifying ideology, the North Star that doesn't change. And that North Star that doesn't change is we believe in the pursuit of happiness for everyone. Everyone who are one of us, everyone who's on this soil, we believe in the pursuit of happiness such that they're able to have freedom, and they're able to realize their agency in said freedom. And as we negotiate these changes, we negotiate the descent from what will be a small fraction of people that, you know, the, 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 the paradox is that we give them equal voice. We then say, okay, I hear you. I hear you. How does that plumb against what we believe to be true? And if it is actually a, a, a worthy adversary to the orthodoxy based on how we see the world collectively, then we should change. And if it's not, then we go, hey, man, you're out of step with us. And as a result, this cannot be. And like that's why shared belief and ideology is so important when it comes to culture, because the way we see the world forms the way we behave in the world. That's why for some, a cow is leather. For others, it's a deity. And for some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all of those things. And it's because of our shared belief that we can therefore navigate the world as a collective. Marcus, again, that is a fantastic response, to which I'll add just a paltry little note. As we go back in time and we, we watch these films from the early 2000s or we listen to these uh, comedy stand-up specials from the late 80s or early 90s, I think it's important that we have a little bit of grace. We have a little bit of forgiveness for ourselves. I think that's one big issue uh, to which we're all victim today. 
when you watch these things and cringe at the fact that you thought them funny or that you said these words, that you said gay, for instance, to, to um, describe something that was a little off or weird, of course it's deemed indecent today. It wasn't then, and that's the culture in which you grew up. And you, know, you didn't consent to that. You didn't you know, have the ability to re withhold your consent. It just was. So you know, don't, don't self-flagellate yourself <laughs> because yes. you participated in these things that you wouldn't participate in today. That's all I'll say regarding that. And you can I, add a, yeah. I think that that is, I mean, it's so well stated that the things that we do today are within the cultural contexts of today. And when we evaluate them outside their context, i.e. in under a different set of conventions and expectations, we can say that was wrong. We can say that that was wrong, right? Um, but provide grace that we were operating under a certain convention. Now, now here's the, the kicker is that even though it was considered acceptable in that time, we have a responsibility to right the wrongs. Right. We have when, responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when able, we have a responsibility to right the wrongs. And as we give grace in ourselves to correct what was flawed behavior, we, that is people who are observing the actions of people who did unsavory behaviors, we have to give them grace also. It's like giving yourself grace as a kid, right? I did some things that I am not proud of as a kid, as a 20 something year old either. Like something I'm not very proud of, right? But in those times, I thought what I was doing was acceptable. I thought that I was doing, you know, was normal. And what I, realize now looking back it's like oh man you were way foul but i've given myself grace to not only identify that um but also when given an opportunity to speak out on things that were not great i could say hey man like that's not cool and trust me i understand because i once was like that i mean things are even just like you know the way like i grew up listening to hip-hop music right and the way that i've talked about women mm -hmm. I am. I, I look with 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 great uh, uh, embarrassment, shame, in the, the the language that I use that was manifested or that were that were presented in the cultural production of what was normal for me. I didn't see anything wrong with it, but I have since changed, right? And as a result, I can look back at that and not say, Marcus, you were a terrible person, but say that like you know you were abiding by what you thought was normal. It is not okay. And therefore, today, my behavior is a manifestation of that, a reflection of that. And one more note on this. I'm going to challenge myself, all of my listeners and, and you and your students and everyone, really, to extend that, that sentiment not only to yourself as a youngster or as a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old, uh, but to our forebears, to ancestors of the both, you know, lineal to us and just in our species. There's a whole history of people who are acting in their cultural milieu and sort of unaware of um, the moral progress that would be made many years in the future. Right. I mean, right. that's a, it's a difficult um, cognitive uh, task, but I think a very important one. Uh, we mm -hmm. don't necessarily exculpate everybody from the past according to his or her sins, but but we should at least be a little bit more forgiving, a little bit more lenient with the knowledge that we too were guilty of many things uh, that were deemed maybe venial back then or not even bad, uh, but certainly many people pre-existing us 
uh, have done the same. So I want to pivot um, to a new topic. Sure. There's a catchy little aphorism used by conservatives in response to a company's openly endorsing progressive politics or policies, and that is go woke, go broke. Yeah. It's often declared in a tone at once triumphant and precautionary. Uh, through the example of Nike, you demonstrate in your book that the equation go broke, go woke may not be as unfailing as, say, the Pythagorean theorem. So tell us, does going woke necessarily lead to your going broke? Not at all. <laughs> not at all. I mean, it, it, it first requires us, again, getting back to the language. What does it mean to go woke? You know, uh, woke really just means consciousness, right? I mean, and it, and it ties back to what we the, the point you we were just making. Consciousness is about the context in which we operate today, relative to what we know of the past, and what we know of present time. And so, being aware of the past, for instance, go like that wasn't cool. Therefore, we are reproving ourselves. We're making changes today to be better in, in the future. This is what woke is. So when we say a brand is being woke, a brand is being conscious. That is this organization is viewing the world through a certain lens, a certain point of view about what's around them and making decisions that are reflective of them. Now we would, at least the reworking of woke um, has been deemed as a way of saying that they are out of sync with what is normal but clearly that's not the case it's just out of sync with what the way you see the world um so for for nike for instance nike and the colin kaepernick uh, uh campaign people so a group of people were not uh were, were not fans of their move to do a, uh, an ad with colin kaepernick as the face of of the communications and as a result not only did they stop buying nikes but they burn their, their their sneakers that they have however the other people, groups of people who like to actually believe in uh, in Colin Kaepernick's stand by kneeling, <laughs> ironically, uh, decide to buy two pair of Nikes as a way of communicating uh, their 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 belief and ideology. These consumption is uh, is a cultural act. It is an outward expression of inward beliefs. So to say that a brand should not be woke or unless they'll go broke is to say that a brand cannot have a point of view about the world and should not exercise their point of view about the world. But what we know of the academic literature about what makes a brand powerful, what makes a brand strong is its ability to have an ideology and to act on said ideology such that I buy the brand, not because of its functional benefits of the product, but I buy the brand as an outward expression of my own inward beliefs that the brand becomes a receipt of identity. And this is why consumption becomes such a cultural practice because I consume as a way of making my culture material. Now, and what uh, is our culture? A system uh, of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are. I want to interrupt just briefly. I think that's very well put. Uh, it wasn't always this way. I, I certainly don't remember it being this way when I was younger. Uh, do you think it is a net benefit or detriment that we now sort of manifest our beliefs through our products, whether they be a handbag or a pair of sneakers or a pair of glasses, or do you kind of yearn for the days, both as a consumer and as a marketer, when it was just a little bit simpler? It seemed like there was more neutrality in products and it wasn't so divisive. 
Well, I, so I think the divisiveness of products is are the ways in which we have uh, that we have reworked them to be such. But I think brands, these strong brands, have always sort of stood for something. I mean, Nike has talked about standing for athletes, you know, since 1985 yeah. when uh, they created the the Just Do It campaign, right, right which was done by by Wyden Kennedy, right. right? But Nike's always believed that every human body is an athlete, big, small, short, tall, we're all athletes, yes. right? And therefore, the only thing keeping us realize our best athletic self is us. So Nike tells the world to just do it. I mean, you think about some of those campaigns from the 90s even, Nike were, 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 were taking on social topics that should athletes be considered role models. Right. Like that is a, that is a social issue. That is a philosophical, ideological issue right. that depending on where you stood on it, you say, yeah, I'm standing with Nike. Right. Or even go back to like Michael Jackson to buy Michael Jackson apparel, to dress like Michael Jackson, to do Michael Jackson's moves. These were all signals of my fandom. Right. right. They're all expressions of identity. Even go back to automobiles, like the kind of car you drove was a way of expression of who you are. Right. The way you dressed. Right. People, uh, hippies that put away their their uh, their, their, their flower power. Uh, uh, aesthetic to adopt a yuppie aesthetic were ways of signaling their evolution. Like we've always used consumption, even like from a religious perspective, like uh, uh, Catholics use rosary. They consume, they buy as a way of signaling their divinity or, 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 or Jews wear yarmulkes. This is a consumption as a way of signaling identity. These things have always exist. I would say today that there are more outlets for identity production or identity projection that our consumption has become more uh more visible mm -hmm. things that were more innocuous like what soap you used have become much more visible i.e people say i wear i i use dove because what dove believes is a brand is an expression of what i believe is a brand so marketers have leveraged the the these vehicles these vectors of identity projection as a way to use the brand, uh, 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 to, to insert the brand into our normal, our normal, uh, our normal discourse, our, our normal uh, behaviors, because we have technologies that make things that normally were private much more public. But the idea of consuming as identity project, I think, is has existed since the beginning of time. Interesting. Uh, I suppose I just didn't realize um, that until I was confronted with just how hyper-politicized it seem, advertising seems to have become in the past five or 10 years. And I think you can kind of agree with that. Oh um, yeah. But, you know, it, maybe I was just totally ignorant of it as a child and, and in my young adulthood, but, but now it just seems to be very emphatic. Uh, now we have only about three minutes, sadly, and I have about 30 more questions. So. <laughs> well, let, let's take it one more time. I'll be really fast. We'll, we'll keep moving really fast. I think yeah, that yeah. you are not wrong. It is far more prevalent than it has been in the yeah. past because uh, because we realized that people consume not because of what things are, but because of who they are. Mm. And as marketing as a discipline has become more knowledgeable, more aware of these consumption behaviors, marketing as a vehicle has shifted. Marketing as a, 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 a discipline to get people to take action has evolved with our better, our increased understanding of human behavior. And therefore you see more of it along with the perverseness, yeah, the pervasiveness yeah. of the technology. What I fear is sort of an uncoupling of the American consumption 
um, or American consumers, I should say, where you have basically two parallel economies. And this is a conversation for maybe a different time. That's yeah. sort of my fear. Now, maybe that's to the advantage of the marketer who is able to enter into this new parallel world and not exploit it, but to capitalize on it. Yeah, sure, yeah. Right, well, so, you know, <laughs> 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 but to, to, to garner some success because of it. Um, it's sort of a, a, you know, a novo uh, terrain. It's, it's brand new. So it's a place to be, you know, kind of cultivated and, and uh, explored. Uh, so let's, let's pin that um, just with our short amount of time remaining. I want to ask you, can you comment on the rapidity at which things have changed from your time as a student up till today? I imagine with the advent of social media, the things you learned in grad school or undergraduate school are now woefully obsolete. So are there, irrespective of the times and the advance of technology, certain fundamental laws of marketing and business to which one can always refer? And earlier, I think you you did comment on some of them, but maybe just flesh them out a little bit more. Sure. Um, I would say that the the things that never change when it comes to marketing, when it comes to branding, is that the most important thing to what we do as a discipline it's about understanding people. And, and the thing is that technology changes really, 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 really fast. But people change very, 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 very slowly. Right? Remember, our fast culture are only manifestations of slow culture. Right? The things that changes slowly over time are beliefs about, uh, about the world change slowly over time. And so for marketers, for anyone with the best interest of getting people to move, that our chances of doing such is far greater when we have a greater understanding of people, and that never changes. Which is why, as an academic, as a as a practitioner, you know, constantly going back to what we know, the theory, what we know of the underlying physics of human behavior, and the better we understand it, the more likely we are to not only get people to move, but the more likely we are to also be better cohabitants of the world. Mm. That if we understand how people see the world informs how they show up in the world and realize that our truth isn't objective, it's subjective. Just like their truth isn't objective, it's subjective. And when we kind of come to that truth about human truth, then we can say, oh, they're just operating by a different meaning-making system than me. And so long as they're uh, meaning-making system, their truth doesn't mean my oppression, then we can coexist, right? In fact, we can work together to create new solutions uh, for a better society. I mean, that's actually the, that's the true American dream. I like the way in which you framed that. I, I began to squirm a little bit as you talked about subjective truth, an issue with which, uh, a topic with which I have a little bit of problem, but you then brought in the idea of the platonic truth overriding those. It's like a meta truth. That's right. That, that about our subjective truth. I like the way that's layered. I think that's brilliantly that's right. put. I mean, um, again, for some, a cow is leather. For others, a deity. For some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all of those things, right? Each truth is valuable and true. Uh, but depending on how you see the world is how you actually end up make meaning of said world. And I know we're coming up right against the clock. I just want to ask you very briefly about your career as a songwriter. You <laughs> mentioned that in your book. And I'm very curious to know by what um themes events other artists are you inspired and mm -hmm. what is your writing process like 
I don't write very much at all anymore. But back then, you know, it's felt like uh, my experiences growing up or even like even just like, you know, relationships and falling in love and, you know, uh, you know having unrequited love and all the things that felt so unique to me. But like I was the only one experiencing such heartache or such euphoria that these experiences everyone to some degree or another feels it and that that uh that that juxtaposition just felt so you know meaningful for me and writing about it became a way by which you help people feel seen and sort of validate my own experience so i've always been motivated by that so the songs i wrote were mostly love songs right because you know, i feel like that's the most important thing love not just you know romantic love but platonic love in general uh because of my ideologies and beliefs right because of my religion um so i wrote from that perspective and i was very much inspired by people like babyface who could take such complex ideas and make them digestible kind of going back to sort of uh where we started and how i think about myself now as a as a scholar is how do you make these things feel human such that when people hear it when they read it they go oh man I get it. And that idea of, of, of a shared sort of getting it, a shared understanding helps us feel a part of the collective. And when we feel that we've been seen, it helps validate our, our existence. I think both of which uh, is very, very important to, uh, to, to what it means to be human. Yeah, that speaks to the essence of the universality of art. That's why Shakespeare is still so salient. It's for exactly that reason. He's speaking not only to his time, you know, Elizabethan England in the 1600s, but he's he's talking to all humankind. And I think uh, what you do in your music, I'm, I haven't read your lyrics, but I, I understand the sentiment. I'm a little bit of a kind of an amateur lyricist myself. And That's great. What, what you're doing is capturing what you think is such a personal, intimate idea or feeling, but really it's shared by all of our fellow human beings. And uh, that's that's the essence of, of art. And uh, I think you're able to incorporate that in your work. Uh, I was hoping that maybe in the epilogue, you'd, you'd give a little, I don't know, a couple lines, couple bars, but we'll have to wait for the sequel. That's how we'll do it next time. Uh, yeah. So uh, Marcus, you've been extraordinarily generous with your time. Of course, in the show notes below, I'll include a link to your website. Uh, to the Amazon page on which people can purchase your books. Of course, you can go to your brick and mortar bookstore too and and find uh, For the Culture there. Uh, is there anywhere else people can find you uh, or where you'd like them to seek you out? Well, you can find me across the social web, the LinkedIn's and uh, uh, Instagram's, TikToks of of, of the world. Um, whatever your your destination of, of choice might be, I'm probably there too. Oh, excellent. So we'll be sure to check you out and to follow your forthcoming work. Uh, work. Hopefully there are more books to come. Uh, and with that, I say, remember my fellow voyagers, it's not fair well. It's not only farewell, but fair forward. I'm Daniel Finneran. This is Finneran's Wake. Thank you and so long. Oh, then you're